I, I feel successful when people around me become extremely successful. You know, I want to have a record of helping build and facilitate the growth of just hit company after hit company. Welcome to Startup Gym, a show about the hard work, coaches, and community that go into building a company. Our Startup Gym is Science Inc., an incubator and venture studio in Los Angeles, California. Today's episode is with Mike Jones, Science's co-founder and CEO. He's a builder, mentor, and investor with over $2.5 billion in exits across his portfolio of early stage companies. We talk about success, blockchain, family, and a bunch of other things along the way. Let's get into it. First off, I wanted to say that people may know you in a few different ways from a few different companies, whether it's from science or you were the CEO of MySpace for a time. How do you like to introduce yourself and give your background? When people say, who are you? What's your background? Um, that's a good question. So I, you know, I think as a, when I started my career, I hated the word entrepreneur hmm. and, uh, and I somehow associated it with some movie that, um, that, that I think in the, in the public told me that entrepreneur meant you were unemployed. And so I always got really nervous about the word. I think today, the way I think of myself is, um, is someone that hopefully, you know, can identify talent and help people build their dreams and visions. So that might mean that I'm part entrepreneurial, but I almost see myself as a, as a mentor and an investor. And then, uh, you know, and then to investors that actually give us capital, I'm obviously the custodian of their money. And so in their case, they're looking at me as somebody that's going to return them hopefully a great amount of, uh, you know, a great amount of money. And just a quick overview where, so you went to school at Oregon. Yep. How did you get from there to science? So I, um, I went to, I, I grew up in Oregon, um, in a, in a small town outside of Portland. And, uh, and then after graduating from high school, I, I went down to University of Oregon, um, and at U of O, you know, I, I started companies, like I started getting kind of bored and the traditional kind of education path didn't really compel me and it wasn't engaging me. And so I started building little businesses and luckily I was in a really nice little small town that supported, uh, entrepreneurship. And so I was able to sm start these small little companies. Um, I was also really fortunate in that in the first week in college, I met, uh, you know, a woman who eventually became my wife. So, um, we fell in love, you know, really young and, uh, and I was with her through the entire journey of college. And then right after college, she got into grad school to get her PhD in psychology in Los Angeles. So, uh, we moved, uh, down to LA and I moved a company I'd started in Oregon with me down to LA. And ever since then, you know, I've been building technology companies, you know, focused right here in, in, in LA. Cool. And we'll come back later to what kept you here in LA, but a little bit more just on you and your background. You're somewhat of a serial CEO, it seems, mm -hmm. whether that's as an entrepreneur or whether you ended up in a, in a CEO role or were pulled into one. What, the, what do you think makes you that kind of leader? What makes you a CEO? That's a good question. Um, I, I think when I was younger, I was probably too arrogant to work for anybody, and I didn't like taking uh, anyone's advice at all. And so there was probably only one option for me, which was working for myself. Um, now I, I, I recognize that there's people way greater than me in talent, and uh, um, and although I think I I think I do have some very strong leadership skills, I think now when I look at the missions that we go on as a team, I, I'm less focused on whether I'm the CEO or not. I'm really more focused on who I'm surrounding myself with. Are they highly intelligent, capable people that do things better than me? 
and uh, and can we all go off and be successful? So earlier in arrogance, I think that title CEO was really important to me. I think now the vision, the mission, and hopefully the success behind that vision and mission is actually the more important part of it. Cool. And I know from from getting to know you that you take family very seriously. You play League of Legends with your kids. Mm-hmm. You came to LA because you were coming here with your wife. How do you balance family and science? Um, you know, it's funny. I was giving a speech last week at um, my school's, my high school's foundation. And I talked a lot about this concept of kind of um, dreams and belief. And one idea I didn't really get into uh, because I didn't have much time was this idea of sacrifice. And one, for some reason, at an early age, I just believed that if I had really big dreams, that I would not be able to have everything. There were certain things that just weren't going to fit into the day. And uh, and so I, at a really early age, started just saying, like, I'm going to focus on a few things and spend my time doing those few things. Um, today, what that means is that I take work very, very seriously, and I take my family very, very seriously. And there's really not much outside of that. Um, I don't take work meetings on weekends. I put my kids to bed basically every night. Um, you know, I'm at every soccer game and every, you know, basketball game. I'm at every school theater performance. And if that means missing conferences or missing meetings, that's just what's going to happen. Um, and it also means that I'm not out, you know, with guy friends frequently. Um, like I'm with my family. But for me, that's worked really well. And I think, um, I think like focusing in on what I want to make excellent is just a nice way for me to prioritize my time. But sometimes it, you know, it means that I'm a little bit unavailable to other things, which, you know, you know, pe- people may not, not like as much. Sure. So one more question on the personal side, and then we'll kind of get into what science is. Mm-hmm. You wrote in a recent newsletter that you sent out something about the fact that as a startup grows, they need to focus on the present, but think through what they want their future headline in the New York Times to be. Mm-hmm. A lot of times startups want to push for the PR right here and now, mm-hmm. but what you kind of suggested is that they think about what the ultimate headline they want to be and work backwards from there so they could focus on what they're doing today. What do you want your Mike Jones headline to Mm, be? That's a good question. Uh, Let's see. So I think now, you know, I, you know, I, I feel successful when people around me become extremely successful. You know, I want to have a record of helping build and facilitate the growth of just hit company after hit company. Um, that's, that's my headline, right? And so more in the vision of a producer than a star, right? I'm not that interested in being the star. I'm really interested in being that producer. So, um, you know, I hope, I would hope that in the future, when people look back at whatever we've accomplished here at science in this segment of my career, that we'd be able to point to like multiple incredible businesses and multiple incredible founders that their success was facilitated through the time they spent with me and the time they spent with my team here. Cool. So let's get into it. What is science? So science is um, science is is really a platform where we um, where we surround entrepreneurs with highly talented operational individuals. We complement their teams and we we look to hopefully make them successful. Um, it's not a standard venture firm. We do have a venture fund, and we're not a standard incubator program. Uh, in but we do incubate, right? So the way I see it is that people have these big visions and dreams. And sometimes those visions and dreams are very well complemented by the people that work here in this building um, and the capital that we can provide. And I like relationships where those individuals want to move in here and work with our teams intimately 
to go accomplish these visions and dreams. And um, there's lots of ways we can help them. We can help them structurally, strategically, tactically, operationally. And then, of course, we can help them with capital. We can help them with M&A hiring. Because the people that I surround them with, the people that work here at Science, are kind of all experts at what they focus in on. And so when we take our expertise and complement it with somebody with a beautiful vision and dream, hopefully we, we facilitate that to become a reality faster. So how does that differ from some of the other traditional accelerator models that we see around the globe? Well, it's not, you know, we're not a time-oriented environment. So I don't look at our CEOs as we're going to spend six months with you and then hope that you go off and become successful. Uh, and we're not an environment where we give you capital and just hope you're going to figure that out, out you know, independently on your own. So uh, we are, we truly view ourselves as co-founders. Um, we certainly don't have the same weight as the founding team, um, but we like to lend our expertise and knowledge to hopefully make them more successful. There's a few other groups that kind of take on this approach. It's a difficult approach to scale. So a lot of people um, shy away from the level of involvement that we have and they're, maybe they pursue a, a path where they can rapidly move through companies quicker and they can deploy capital faster. That just really has not been our, our, uh, our formula. Sure. So on that point of the level of involvement, it is, it's high. We're very helpful to the companies in our building. What are the most common needs that companies have? that you think science is best equipped to help with? You know, the, the easiest one to say is financing, but that's actually the least interesting one, <laughs> you know, because, you know, a great company with a great vision and founder typically won't have a financing problem. They all think that financing is a problem, but financing is really not often the problem, right? The thing that we, um, I think that we are uniquely good at is understanding the model that they're pursuing, figuring out the core components of, of proving to ourselves and to those founders that that model could be successful, surrounding them with the right people, avoiding really poor decisions, um, and then hopefully finding the right partners to finance them through growth. So, you know, it comes really down to strategy, right? We are strategic experts in a small segment of business. And when we find companies entering into that segment of business, I believe that we can add, lend a lot to their strategic approach. So what does the team look like? One thing that I have noticed, I get asked a lot about science is how many people are on the team or how many companies do you have in the building? What is the, what, what do things look like around here? Well, like, like, you know, I mean, um, you know, the, 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 the environment of science ch changes frequently. Um, you know, I think right now our, our team, our core team is probably around 15 or 16 people. Um, you know, inside the building, like, you know, there's probably eight companies of different size and scale. There are certain companies doing tens of millions in revenue with, you know, 30, 40, 50 people on staff. And there's certain companies that's one person with a vision. So it's people at different stages. Um, the building changes all the time because companies move in and out all the time, right? And companies fail all the time. And we have to recognize that that's obviously a big you know, port, you know, part of this. And I'm really sensitive to when we bring on staff at Science because, um, you know, first off is it's not a you know, it's a very distracting environment with a ton of stuff going on all the time. And there's opportunity everywhere. And the moment that you step in here and you become immersed in our world, you'll see seven companies that you immediately want to build and 10 <laughs> ideas and 30 deals. Like, cause there's just so much knowledge flowing through these walls that you just get an immense amount of access and it kind of lights people's brains on fire. And if you're not ready to handle this kind of uh, you know, multitasking approach to entrepreneurship, like this isn't really the right place for you, which is why the people that we, um, you know, that, that we're fortunate enough to bring in to be part of the team, you know, they need to be able to 
you know, ingest a lot because there's just a lot going on. Yeah, it definitely moves fast. Yeah. Could you speak a little to the origin story of science? Who are, who are your other partners? How did you come together and build this? So, um, you know, I'd known Peter Pham for a really long period of time. And uh, we had looked at Idea Lab together, you know, years and years prior and just generally liked it. I think for he and I, these, our personalities, this model worked really effectively. Um, Tom Dare um, had worked uh, with me at, I'm going to say, two companies prior to science, um, MySpace, and then a big private equity company we were involved in. Um, and he just was excellent at, you know, pounding through the details of finance operations and structure. And then Greg Gilman, who's uh, our fourth core partner, um, is an attorney who I met like at my very first company. And we had done projects together when I was, you know, 21, or 22 years old. So like 20 years ago. Um, and these four people, you know, I've known for a long period of time and they, we all complement each other really well. So we all have our independent swim lanes and we, we understand what each other does effectively. At the beginning of science, I had other partners as well who are people that I had built businesses with in the past or had been with me at different companies like MySpace or UserPlan or AOL. Um, and most of them at some point decided they wanted to build their own businesses versus supporting science as an entity. And I think that's kind of often a natural path around here, which is that you see so much activity going on at some point, you're like, I've just got to go build my own thing. So over time, we've lost a few of our partnerships or our partners here uh, to, to entrepreneurship um, but the core, you know, four of us who really hold most of the weight have, have always, have always been here. Is that a, that just come with the territory of building startups? Is I think so. People tend to move around. Yeah. People move around. And, and like I said, like when you see so much stuff coming through the walls at some point, you, you pick up a habit and you're like, I've just got to go do this. Right. And, you know, I'm super supportive of that. Right. Sure. Like at the end of the day, like we're here to build people's dreams. If someone's dreams isn't to help build other people's dreams. Science is probably isn't the place for you. Like you've got to be here to help other people um, and to transfer your knowledge to them and make them probably more successful than yourself. Um, that's, that's really what we do. Um, and so sometimes that means that they're going to go off and start their own businesses because they want to be an operator, not a, not a you know, strategic mentor and advisor. Sure. That's awesome. Yeah, there's definitely a lot going on. Is there a type of company that tends to be a good fit? Yeah, there is a type of company that tends to be a good fit. I'm not sure it's a good thing though. So, you know, one of the, one of the challenges that I wrestle with is as somebody who's operated a lot of businesses, you know, I look into these kind of nuts and bolts components of running a company day to day and growing these companies. And sometimes what that does is, um, I'd say it dilutes the dreams a little bit because suddenly you're really immersed in the reality of these companies. And, uh, and so companies that, you know, founders that really want to build fundamental businesses are very much attracted to science. Um, one of the hard things is that venture capital often doesn't connect with the kind of uh, block by block building versus the kind of big vision approach. So we do attract a lot of nuts and bolts entrepreneurs that want to find growth and value things like revenue and really think through the operations of these companies, um, which is fine. Uh, and now we are obviously expanding into kind of other sectors where you actually do have to have really, really big vision, which is a kind of broader step for us. Um, but yeah, it, there's a, there's a breed of entrepreneurs that's very much attracted to our environment. So then how do you filter what you do ultimately get involved in? How do you kind of filter out with everything that comes across your desk and what types of companies are you personally most excited about right now? So the way I, you know, the way I filter companies is the way I honestly filter 
my time, which is the same way I filter my life, which is that I think through where I'm spending my time and the things that can make the biggest impact on whatever goal I'm trying to achieve. And I try to weight my time into those things. So, you know, you know, if I have entrepreneurs with really big visions and, uh, and we believe that we can really accomplish great things together, I tend to go spend a lot of time with them. And if we're at the very earliest stages, I spend time on strategy to make sure that they can figure their way through the earliest for- formative moments of these companies. Um, and then I have to become a little bit selective when we have companies that aren't going after big visions or they're not showing massive growth and I'm not clear how we're going to get there or the founder loses steam. I will be happy to support them. But at some point, there's um, like the amount of weight that I'm going to bring to that discussion will probably not be effective. Sure. So what about L.A.? Science is in L.A., you chose to build it here. Mm-hmm. You at some point could have gone somewhere else to build science, but science is very much at its core and an LA company. Yeah. Why LA? What makes LA unique? I mean, there's a lot of things that make LA unique. Um, and I, and by no means is LA the next Silicon Valley. So I, there's no delusions of grandeur from my perspective that somehow the capital environments is going to shift to, or going to shift to Los Angeles as being this like primary hub of. Why do you think that's the case? Well, you know, at the end of the day, you know, asset classes like technology startups are, are, you know, build in cycles. So you have somebody that starts a company and they realize the benefits and they sell that company and they have proceeds. And then now, now they've realized that the way to, for them to make capital is they understand technology companies and buying and selling technology companies. So they take their capital and they put it into more startups that thus hopefully go off and have successful events that returns them more capital. So it becomes this nice uh, gr- growth cycle that provides more and more capital in the environment for more and more startups, right? What that basically means is that this, the center where there's the greatest M&A and liquidity for angels will probably always have the greatest amount of uh, early stage funding dollars. So, you know, with the majority of large scale M&A happening in the Valley, most likely the majority of capital that will be deployed into early stage technology will also be focused in the Valley. That's fine. I mean, we all recognize that. And luckily, I find the Valley is super supportive of Los Angeles. In fact, the majority of capital that, you know, Peter's raised for our network of businesses has come out of Silicon Valley. So we get a ton of support. Um, but what makes LA special for me um, is that it attracts highly creative individuals that approach things very different than uh, if you were in Silicon Valley. I think the kind of companies that get built down here are just different businesses that, you, that are natural to Los Angeles. I'm very selective on thinking about you know, the companies that we're meeting with, whether it's natural for them to be in this environment or a different environment, because I want it to be natural, right? Because if we do the right things in Los Angeles, then the town around Los Angeles will support that company, the capital will and the growth will. But if we do things in Los Angeles that really shouldn't be here, it's just going to be harder to scale, right? So Los Angeles is obviously a wonderful creative center. I think it does have, you know, its finger on the pulse of trends and, and social and, uh, you know, and, and obviously uh, entertainment, you know, entertainment, media, mobile, et cetera. So these are the sectors we spend a lot of time in, um, you know, and for me, it's just also been a great place to live and build, build my career. And so I don't find that I lack here, although I would imagine that if we were in Silicon Valley, we would have probably more capital, more access to companies, but that's okay. Like we have plenty to do here. There's tons of great entrepreneurs and we're happy to be here. So science has been in LA for six years. Mm-hmm. How has the ecosystem here changed for tech since you've been here? Um, well, six. Well, since I've been here, you know, it's changed a lot because I moved here in like '97, mm-hmm. um, and you know, there wasn't really the, the reality is 1997 was a drought for most capital markets, so or venture capital, so it wasn't it wasn't exciting to kind of be anywhere at that point. 
But Los Angeles was certainly not the first company to start seeing a reemergence of venture, right? So, you know, from 97 until now, you know, the community's grown immensely. We have companies that have built and scaled with, you know, hundreds to thousands of employees. We have multi-billion dollar exits that have happened within the Los Angeles region. We have a nice supporting, uh, you know, venture capital environment here. So, you know, it's, it's changed. Um, I think now that the big takeaways are that you can build a company here, you can get financed here, you can find talent here, and you can probably sell that company here too. Um, and maybe in 1997, and you know, you couldn't have said that. Cool. Makes sense. Yeah. So let's move on a little bit to science blockchain. Mm -hmm. So last year, science started science blockchain. I guess first off, what is it? And we, I don't think we have to go into what is blockchain. Sure. I think that's probably for a different podcast. But I guess quickly, how do you describe what science blockchain is for someone who doesn't know? So science blockchain, honestly, it's a, you know, it's just our new incubator vehicle. So when we do things, um, we ha obviously have to work on top of a pool of capital that's going to support the things that we do. Um, we have an incubator pool of capital that is primarily focused on marketplaces and mobile tech. And now we have a new pool of capital that is focused on blockchain startups. Um, our history in blockchain goes beyond last year. We, you know, we had built and invested in a series of companies four or five years ago when Bitcoin saw its first kind of real emergence into the public eye. And, you know, due to the complex kind of regulatory environments, we, we kind of pulled back, um, and waited. And at the beginning of 2000, the very beginning of 2017, maybe even the end of 2016, uh, we all felt it coming again. And by, you know, February, March, April, we decided that we needed our own bespoke vehicle to build companies in the space. And thus science blockchain as a vehicle was born. We happened to finance it through an ICO, but we could have financed it other ways. I think we wanted to do it in the way that was the most native to the community. But basically, it's a pool of capital that allows us to work with startups that are in the blockchain community, pursuing ICOs or building their own visions, and it lets us, you know, staff around that and provide them investment and work them through that process. How specifically does that differ from raising institutional money? Like what is different about raising via an ICO than raising from LPs? Um, <clears throat> well, so there's not very many people similar to us that have raised like a fund through an ICO. Really, I think there's only two or maybe three I can think about. So, and it's, and it's very, very different, right? So raising with traditional LPs is, a you know, typically like a year long process that's very complicated and you're sp spending a lot of time in boardrooms kind of talking through your approach to investing and all these things. You know, raising through an ICO, um, in our case was using a Reg D crowdfunding exemption that the SEC allows and then doing, um, you know, a bunch of uh, smaller individual investor discussions that, that were qualified investors to, to invest in our tokens. Um, so it's a different investor pool, different size checks, different level of communication under, under different SEC exemptions. Um, it's, just, it's just different, right? It's just a different type of vehicle. Sure. So kind of going off of that, the, the fact that you now have hundreds of token holders who have a large interest in watching these companies succeed. Yeah. How does that align with the science model of being really hands-on, really helpful with the companies that are here in our building? Whereas the traditional LP kind of will give you money and give you some support, but to some degree, they're not actively involved day-to-day. -day. Science is very actively involved day-to-day. -day. How does that translate to the token holders? So it's, yeah, the, the, the interesting thing <clears throat> broadly about this incentive slash token economy is it lets your customers, or in our case, our investors, have a much greater level of participation into the companies. In fact, one would argue that if if there are certain industries that are undisruptible because the incumbents are so big 
you wonder whether through creating incentive structures for participation, if you could literally get people to disrupt these incumbents, like maybe this is what that took, but that's a little bit of a different discussion. But so what this means to, to our companies now is that if they come and they work with us at Science Blockchain and we work with them on their business, there's hundreds of people that are also science token holders that are exactly to your point are motivated to see them become successful. And they're super active in Telegram and they're super active on social and they love to see everything that we're working on and talk to the founders. And so you have this highly participatory group of investors that are very excited about our portfolio. And you're exactly right. Traditional LPs don't you know, want and or need that level of connectivity back to individual portfolio. <clears throat> but in the token economy, these token holders get like super active, which for a company can be great if you're doing a good thing and maybe not great, you know, if you're not doing good things. Uh, hopefully, we select companies that are doing great things, and so that community really rises up to support them. Cool. So, can you talk a little bit about the future of science? The science token is a security token, mm -hmm. we would call it. Yeah. Can you speak a bit to the future of security tokens? Well, I guess first, what that is. Sure. And how it differs from other tokens out there. And then second, where you see this market moving in that regard. So for, for no really specific reason, the token economy has kind of been divided into three things. Application tokens, uh, utility tokens, and security tokens. And I'm going to use application in the same term as protocol. Maybe there are some nuances, but mm -hmm. let's just say there's three types of tokens. Um, as far as the, you know, I think for, if, if you were talking to a, you know, a lawyer that specialized on securities or the SEC, they would probably not see three different things. They probably just see two. And they would see things that are securities and things that aren't securities, <laughs> right? They don't, I don't think they care about the nuance of whether it's a protocol right. or a DAP, right? So if you say there's things that are securities and things that aren't securities, then you have to start applying those rules to the broad level token economy. And what you have to start asking yourself is, are there things that are considering themselves not to be securities that maybe are securities? And there's a really big, it's a really big difference and it's a really big deal. Because as you can imagine, being in the US, when you sell securities, it's very complicated versus selling not securities. So if we're on it, you know, selling a, you know, if we're selling coffee in a coffee shop, it's much easier than selling stock in that coffee shop, for instance. <clears throat> so what we think is that there are certainly things that have considered themselves not securities that are probably securities. And I think broadly, the market also agrees with us that that is true. Um, if, if that is deemed true, it just changes the way that these things can trade who can sell them, how you can buy them, and who can buy them. So I think the future is that there will be both security tokens and not security tokens. I think the scrutiny on the not security tokens will become exceedingly high. And a lot of the kind of lighter weight, fast moving ICOs we see today that are considering themselves not security tokens, that, that will probably go away. What do you think it'll be that will trigger a higher level of that scrutiny? My guess, sadly enough, is it'll probably be some massive class action lawsuit from individual token holders against a token offering where they lose a lot of money. So it'll probably be tied to some level of large-scale fraud, right? Because I think the, the government's been, the U.S. government, you know, six months ago, I had this fear that the U.S. was going to fall behind in technology because countries like Japan were going to become so progressive on their treating of cryptocurrencies that they could actually elapse us in this new technology, you know, as of the SEC's comments this week, suddenly, you know, the U.S. feels much more friendly, I think, than we would have anticipated. Um, I think they're cautious and they're certainly watching and they are identifying fraudulent ICOs and they are shutting them down, which is totally fine and great because we need this, we need this environment to continue and, and it, we need it to be clean. 
So I suspect that if there's a large-scale fraudulent event that defrauds a substantial amount of American taxpayers and they lose their money through something that was not a security but maybe was a security, that you will see a larger action against that. And that will probably cause people to take a bigger pause um, on what they're going to go and bring to market. Absolutely. My general advice that I always give to people in blockchain is to make sure you're protecting yourself. All these regulators and what they end up doing will likely change over the coming years, probably a lot this year. Yeah. And so it, it falls upon the individual to have some responsibility and understand what you're getting into. That's right. Uh, that said, you are someone who seems to know a lot about this stuff personally, not just as, as it relates to what you do in blockchain on behalf of science. Yeah. When did you personally get into blockchain and cryptocurrency and what excited you about it at the beginning? Let's see. So, I mean, I probably started buying Bitcoin, you know, on Mt. Gox maybe, you know, f five or six years ago or w prior to the Mt. Gox hack. And, um, you know, and I think what got me into it was just that, you know, suddenly there's a new type of digital money. And that's that's really cool, you know. And if you grew up playing video games and programming and being on computers, suddenly this idea is a really, really cool idea. Mm -hmm. And what's funny is at the time of me getting into it, I felt like I was super late to the game because so many other people had gotten into it way prior to me. Um, but as a technologist, you know, the moment I started seeing the possibilities, it was, you know, just like many people that get into the sector, it becomes an all-encompassing all thesis. And, uh, and I remember even, you know, after I started in this, coming back to science after some, you know, holiday break, being like, this is our only focus. Um, you know, at that point, you know, like I said, we shut it down because, uh, because of a lot of the regulatory environment and then this, that exact same feeling happened again. So I, I don't know, I don't know what drove me into it, but I know that as a technologist, many technologists become super fascinated by this. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a component that people don't talk about, which is this idea of like autonomous systems. And so it's really neat to think that there's this, these systems being developed that are kind of packaged and then placed in the world. They're not AI, but they are autonomous, right? And they exist based on the crowd's interaction with, the, with them. And they exist in theory without some central authority. And that's a really neat idea. And I think it's underweighted. Uh, I, I don't. I think people love to talk about AI, but I think there's more things happening in the crypt, in the crypto space around autonomous systems, which are equally as fascinating as the future of AI that we don't really talk about much. Sure. Yeah. Uh, future is definitely exciting. Okay, so we did our ten minutes on crypto. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to some of the more miscellaneous fun questions. Sure. If you could have thirty of the world's greatest minds with unlimited resources mm -hmm. work on one problem for the next thirty years. What would you have them work on? Hmm. That's a really good question. The first thing that came to mind was obviously the environment, but then, um, you know, but then the, you know, I, I think on the environment, you have to either take one of two positions. Either you'd say it's, it's solvable or it's not solvable, right? <laughs> and so if you take, it's a solvable position in that we can completely repair what we've done here. Um, then you would say the environment. If you take the position that it's not solvable, you would say, well, half of those minds should be working on the slowing of it and half of the minds should be working on complete alternative living solutions for us. Interesting. Right? You know, the, the second place my mind went was life extension. But the problem with life extension is that without a clean environment, it kind of doesn't really matter. <laughs> right? Like the, probably the worst thing that can happen for the earth is that we all live 50 years longer. Right? That would be probably incredibly bad for the planet. Sure. Um, so I think, I think you have to go to the environment. I think it's undeniable. 
Um, you know, I found ways that I've changed my life and the, and the way that our, our family lives just because I, there's, there's no, there's no world now where I cannot consider the environmental consequences of my decisions. And, um, you know, and I think we, we all have that responsibility now to really take that in. Sure. Maybe we could start by taking some of the cars off the road here in LA. Yeah. <laughs> so when you, a new question, when you think of the term success, mm-hmm. who comes to mind and why? Uh, I, you know, when, when it, from a, from a pure perspective, I'd say that when I think of success, I think of like, you know, a, a you know, happy people and a happy family, right? Like that's a very, that that's probably the pinnacle of success that, a, that I think a human should really strive for, which is that, you know, you are, at, you, you have a safe home and you're really excited about the people you're spending a lot of time with, right? That's probably the right vision of success. Um, you know, second to that, I've met a lot of incredibly financially successful people that have really miserable lives. And they've, I remember talking to one person who was a multi-billionaire and, uh, and he had more or less become completely removed from his family and, and more or less his kids had disowned him as a father. And I asked him, you know, do you, do you think you could have had all the financial success that you had and, you know, been an incredible dad to your kids or an incredible husband to your now divorced wife? And his answer was like, no. I don't think I could have had both. Right. Um, and he was an incredibly capable person. So, you know, there is a little bit of a choice where like, if you're imagining success as an immense amount of wealth generation, that is very much a 24 seven job. And very few people can balance that effectively with happiness. And so there is going to be some sacrifice there. So you have to think through happiness first, I think, and then financial success second. The second place that my mind went is, of course, into just accomplishments. I mean, the beauty of Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or any of these incredible entrepreneurs of our day are that they took on incredibly bold challenges, often at the sacrifice of their own personal lives to hopefully do things that better humanity, right? And, you know, right now, let's face it, like Elon is the person leading that charge. And so you have to have a great amount of respect for what he's put up uh, of his own self in order to try to explore space for us as a, as a, as a population, which, you know, to your prior question could be really important for all of us. Sure. That's some great advice. As you look at your current path and where you've been and your trajectory of where you're going, who would you attribute your path to? Mm. Well, I had, you know, I was fortunate that I had very entrepreneurial parents. Um, and obviously like they're, spirit for starting new ventures and taking risks was not lost on me. So that's like super important. Um, and probably the greatest influence of me, you know, becoming mm-hmm. an entrepreneur and, and being willing to take risks. Second to that, like I was fortunate that I had a handful of teachers here and there and access to technology that, um, that allowed me to believe that I could take on bold ideas that other people maybe hadn't taken on. And I could again, like be successful at taking that risk. Um, but you know, you know, broadly, the greatest influence of my, you know, the attribution of my path is to my wife, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, you know, I've been with my wife longer than I've been with my parents in a certain, you know, well, just I have, right? Because I've been with her for over, you know, 20 years at this point. And so she and I, um, you know, became very mutually supportive of each other at a really young age and we grew together. And I think the comfort I had in knowing that I had a partner that fully supported all my crazy, uh, you know, ventures 
And knowing that there wasn't risk there allowed me to take much greater risks and allowed to kind of curb that fear of failure. Um, and so that was a big piece of it. And, you know, it's also probably important to note that, you know, having financial resources, although may not provide happiness for everyone, it does certainly provide you with a lot of ability to take risk, right? And so money might not buy happiness, but money certainly does allow you to go do things that uh, you can do it with a little, with less fear, right? So if, if Jen was the number one inspiration over the last, you know, over my life to allow me to go and do, you know, do what I do now, uh, the capital that I've been able to amass around that journey has also given me the confidence to try bigger and bolder ideas. Interesting. It's a good take. What's one piece of advice you find yourself constantly giving? Uh, you know, years ago I was holding an all hands here and I said something so simple that I probably read a million times in some meme, which was that, you know, don't, you know, don't continue to do the same thing and expect different results. And it's just such a true statement on all aspects of life. You know, I, I originally started connecting with it because I'd meet with these companies that were doing the same thing every single month and getting the exact same result. And somehow when I'd ask them like, how's, you know, how's next month going to be further towards your goal. They're like, well, we think it's going to be different next month. And you're looking at months and months of historical data being like, I don't know why you, why you think that. But then, you know, I started realizing that that's that same premise is everywhere. Like I meet, you know, I meet people in unhappy relationships. And I'm like, why do you think next month's going to be better than this month? They're like, well, we just think it will. Right? And you're like, well, but it's been a long time, right? Or people that are unhappy in their jobs or people that want change, uh, but they're not willing to take the risk of change. So, uh, you know, so th that piece of advice, I, I kind of just see everywhere. And whether I'm talking to people about their personal development or their family development, or their relationship development, or just generally developing their happiness or their company, kind of the same principle, which is that don't do the same thing and expect different results. And if you can, you know, take the risk, you know, drop the fear and try new things to see if you get better results. Sure. That's a good piece of advice. I feel like I should thank you. This is great <laughs> advice here. Uh, so last thing I want to do is do kind of a quick fire round mm -hmm. of, I took a look at your angel list profile mm -hmm. and took a look at some of the investments and there are a bunch of names in there that people might recognize as we go through them. And I want to go through a few and one here, cause I know sometimes there can be some information that's not totally accurate. One, just is that a personal investment? Cause I know you're an active angel investor mm -hmm. or is it a science investment? Sure. And then two, what attracted you to that company or that founder? Why'd you say yes? Okay. Wealthfront. Uh, so Wealthfront was a science investment. Um, you know, my dad was a financial planner and still is a financial planner. I understood the nuances of personal financial planning. I loved Adam, uh, who at the time was running the business. Um, and I loved the simplicity of the platform. And, uh, and I looked at it and thought to myself, gosh, this is something I would build. This is a company I'd love to run. How can't we participate in this, uh, in this, you know, in this, uh, you know, you know, you know, in this round. Medium. So we've, kn I've known Ed Williams for a long time. Peter's good friends with him and his wife. Um, as science, we participated in his round again, you know, complete visionary on human communication. He was taking the kind of anti approach to Twitter, which is that he had spent time, you know, truncating communications down to 140 characters. And suddenly he was going into like depth of long form felt like a really natural, uh, you know, counterbalance to kind of short form that had kind of taken over the internet, fell in love with obviously him and his vision. And so we happily participated in that investment. Maker Studios. Maker Studios. I, I met the founders of Maker Studios personally uh, when I was running MySpace. They had just moved here. 
uh, to LA to kind of pursue their dreams. They had a history of doing some stuff in YouTube, but they did not, they certainly did not, uh, you know, explain to me the vision of Maker Studios. They explained to me this vision of working with YouTubers and building something. Um, I, I looked at acquiring the company numerous times. After I sold my space and stepped down, um, they were in the middle of doing a financing round. I had connected back up with the founders and, and hap- happily invested behind their vision. And, uh, you know, subsequently they, they got sold to Disney. Zip Recruiter? Zip Recruiter is a, is an often overlooked startup in LA. Um, they have been really quiet. Uh, I don't know the funding, you know, history before I participated in their round. It, but, but needless to say, they had raised very little money. They had an immense amount of revenue. Um, I believe when I participated, they were profitable. Um, and they were close to uh, one of my board members here. And he uh, arranged through his fund to put together a round for ZipRecruiter, invited me personally to put in some capital. Um, and this is prior to me having our venture fund. Um, and so I participated as one, uh, as one, you know, one contributor into that syndicate. And, um, and they just subsequently, you know, announced they raised a really big round. So I guess it's going to be a good, great investment. MeUndies. MeUndies, um, when we started science, you know, we were looking at disruptive commerce companies. Um, MeUndies pitched us probably within the same few weeks as Dollar Shave Club. And, uh, you know, we, I loved, um, Jonathan's vision for the brand. It was at that time, like almost a unisex, gender neutral, kind of, you know, Brooklyn vibed brand that, that, that to me felt empowering to both genders and not over sexualized, not demeaning to women. It just felt fun. Like there was something about his vision of that brand that just felt fun, you know? And he articulated his vision just, um, just so well that it felt like, gosh, you know, this is really a brand. Like this isn't a underwear company. This is, he's building a brand. And at that point we had also, you know, started spending a bunch of time with Mike Dubin and we started believing in this concept of brands built online, matched with direct to consumer strategy and growth. And so science participated as the original incubator and the original capital contributor into MeUndies. Awesome. Your answer there kind of bleeded into the last one, which is Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club. Yeah. So similar time frame, right at the beginning of science, um, a friend of mine named Jamie Kantrowitz, uh, you know, referred Mike Dubin to come talk to us. Um, he came in and, and told his vision for, um, for Dollar Shave Club, which, you know, was broad. I mean, he felt that there was a, a lacking brand for men. Uh, he obviously targeted razors as his entry point. He had figured out a way to, you know, get razors made, sold razors, et cetera. Um, and he had, you know, even within our first meeting, which um, he was reluctant to show us, but he had this rough cut of this really funny video, right? And he showed us this rough cut, I think after a lot of, you know, coaxing from us. And um, at that point, I had another partner here named Ryan said, and after he left, we were like, that thing is just going to go. I looked at it last night. I think it has 30 million views. Oh, it's incredible. Right. And he, you know, it, it was really funny because at News Corp, when I was running MySpace, I spent a lot of time with a guy named John Miller, who had a great amount of influence actually over my career. And John and I talked a lot about this mixing of content and commerce. And suddenly when I saw this, I was like, this is content and commerce. This is this beautiful blend of like content and commerce, YouTube as a commerce platform. Could this happen? Right. And the answer was like, yeah, we think it could happen. And then it was also naturally replenishable, had a good margin. And he articulated even in that video 
for me, when he started saying things like, can you believe, you know, if you go to the store and buy a razor, they're behind a locked cabinet and it's super inconvenient to purchase. And I was like, yeah, that's really stupid. Like, that's really, you know. So he started articulating reasons why this was just a better experience. Um, and so we were super fortunate. We uh, offered him an, an opportunity to come here and be, you know, be part of the science family. We invested capital, in, you know, into his first, we were the first capital invested into his company. I subsequently did some additional investments um, also through AngelList, actually, where we purchased secondary shares along his journey. And, uh, and you know, I was on the board through the entire process. It was an, you know, an incredible four years for him. Awesome. Mike, thanks so much. I, I'll say that I've learned a ton from you in my time at Science oh, so good. far and certainly have learned even in this hour that we've been talking. And I hope that people listening do too. Where can the people listening find you on Twitter? Sure. So I'm M Jones, M J O N E S on Twitter. I tweet fairly infrequently, <laughs> but I'm starting to tweet more. Um, I, we, science has a medium, uh, you know, a medium account as well, where we post kind of our bigger news and we're trying to keep our website much more updated, um, uh, which we hadn't done for years until about like six months ago. So, but about you, you can certainly find me. I'm, I'm super available. You know, I pretty much clear my inbox every single night. And, um, and I also typically go through most of the info requests that come into science and either forward them to individuals or reply to them myself. So I'm not a hard guy to get in touch with. Um, although I am becoming a little bit harder to meet with just because I'm trying to refine my time allocation a little bit. Cool. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Mike Jones for a great conversation. I loved what he said about focusing on the areas of life that he wants to make excellent. He takes work very seriously and he takes family very seriously. Hopefully you had some takeaways too. If you did, we'd love it if you'd share this episode and leave a rating on this podcast. My name's Laz, at LazAlberto on Twitter, if you have any feedback. Thanks for listening.